You are listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, episode 26, in which Bullseye makes a return and Daredevil makes a choice that will haunt him for a long time to come. Greetings and salutations. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am the eponymous Dave, known to some as J. David Weedard and to others as Kirk Cameron's Deep Dark Secret. Hmm. On this show, I read Daredevil comics, I think on them really, really hard, and then I come up with a few tidbits and notes on the stories and characters. If this is your first episode, what took you so long? Really? No, I'm kidding. I can't believe the show has actually been around six months. It still feels really, really new to me, so I'm hopefully keeping it fresh enough for you. Actually, I was going to say that if this is your first episode, we are now knee-deep in a read-through of the Frank Miller era of Daredevil. Last week, we saw the first appearance of Elektra and learned a little bit about Matt and his, um, I guess the way he sees the world, no pun intended. I've kind of been thinking about that ever since, and this week's issue only served to take me further down that road and kind of think about how idealistic is Matt. Is it idealism, I guess, is a better question. And I've been mulling that idea over, so we're going to get to that in a little bit. And and just to clarify, to say that he's he idealizes things or is idealistic doesn't mean that Matt is ignorant to the flaws of the world, like Jack Murdoch. He's not ignorant to that. He's not ignorant to the flaws in Electra, at least not completely. But he chooses to see the world in a more positive light in some ways. And for as much as Miller's work is known for the grit and the dark and the, you know, violence... It just serves to underscore this idea of a positive Matt Murdock, which is kind of becoming more and more surprising as we go forward. And I wonder if that was Miller's intent to have Matt with a more positive outlook on the world than we think, or at least to set that up in order to smack it down later. Of course, I can't really delve into Frank's mind and get the intent. We may never know the answer to that. All we have is the interpretations of the work here, but there's an awful lot of evidence in this issue and some upcoming episodes to kind of chew on that idea of a positive, idealistic Matt Murdock. And of course, we know just in concept that Matt is an idealistic person. That's not what I'm saying. I'm I'm looking at a deeper level of that, where he will overlook flaws to some extent, to a minimal extent, or just not really judge based on those. To see the potential versus what is in front of him, I guess is a better way to put it. But we're going to be chewing on that in the upcoming episodes. First, I want to deviate for a moment so I can do an oddly untimely talk about Captain America the Winter Soldier. Yes, I know, at the time you're hearing this, it's not so much new, but this was a kick-ass movie. And if you haven't seen it by the time this comes out, mark that in the fail column. Easily one of the best Marvel movies to date, uh, on par with The Avengers, and I loved the first one, but this one really moved the the whole film franchise forward in a big way. The action is great, the performances are stellar, the plot is gripping, and there are turns that I really did not see coming, but I was glad they happened. All in all, it's one of the best Marvel films to date, and something that I hope Drew Goddard is looking at as he plans the new Daredevil series, because there's just so much win in this movie. But I just wanted to gush over that for a moment before we dive back into The Man Without Fear. 
And see, I kept it brief, because I could definitely go on and on about this movie. But I know we have an issue to cover, and this week's issue, well, Bullseye is back. And he's even more insane than when we last saw him kidnapping the Black Widow. And Daredevil's going to be forced to make some hard choices, which becomes a theme for this issue and for this episode as a result. In all of that, an Electra meets Heather. Sort of. It didn't really go the way we hoped. So get ready for a Frank Miller tour de force in Daredevil number 169. But first, as usual, a podcast promo. Together from the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just Ron, dedicated to truth, justice, and geek for all mankind, it's Dinner for Geeks. Dinner for Geeks proudly crusades at twotruefreaks.com. There is a term thrown around for the 80s, rather appropriate term. It's called the Reagan era. Now, Ronald Reagan had just been elected president in a landslide victory over Jimmy Carter just before this week's issue came out. In the 80s, or the Reagan era, uh, they're remembered for the rise of the home computer, which would one day lead to podcasting, a hugely socially relevant development. It's also known for action movies, greed, and bad haircuts. I mean, flock of seagulls, anyone? Lots of feathers. Now, as we fully enter the 80s, Miller is going to begin using the 80s styles and genres to influence his tales. Now, most Daredevil tales were, I mean, reflective of the times, but they didn't necessarily absorb that as much. They just happened in that time period. Therefore, you would see period dress, period cars, things like that. But while Miller's going to start bringing in sort of the flavor of the pop culture of the day, he's not afraid to pull from the classics, like John Huston and Humphrey Bogart, and the film era where Reagan made his name. See? It's all cyclical, or maybe I'm just reaching a bit to make a point. Now, in this, the rise of the 80s, comes the March 1981 issue of Daredevil, issue 169. The cover by Miller and Jansen shows Bullseye standing in a spotlight. From a high angle, we're looking down on him. He looks completely enamored. Uh, he's surrounded by many unconscious people of all genders, ages, and body types. And they're all crumpled in heaps around him. I mean, he's just torn up the town. Here's the kicker. They're all wearing Daredevil's costume. Can I just say that the look of deranged glee on Bullseye's face is both amusing and unsettling, which I guess is kind of the point. I mean, sure, yeah, everyone's laying in a heap around Bullseye. They're wearing a costume that's intriguing, but come on. Bullseye is completely off his rocker. I mean, he looks primed to explode. And that is the scary part. 
I just cannot see how anyone could see this issue on the rack, look at it, and just say, nah, it's not for me. I mean, if you're a passing fan, a longtime fan, just somebody who's heard of Daredevil, wouldn't you have to know why and how Bullseye came to this place of elation? And credit where credit's due, the colors really elevate this cover. The outer edges outside the spotlight are blue. And that gives a cool feeling to the piece, as in temperature. And then this makes sure that the center of light in the middle and bullseye, they just radiate intense heat off of them. I mean, it's clear from this image and the icon box that a new era has been declared for Daredevil. So if you were a lapsed fan, uh, if you were just mildly curious, well, looking at this, you know the tone is going to be strikingly different than what has come before. It's going to be something unique. Now, the story within this striking cover is entitled Devils, and it was written by Frank Miller, inked by Klaus Janssen, lettered by Joseph Rosen, colored by Glennis Ween, so pretty much what we've known before. And we open on a television screen as an evening interview show begins with host Tom Snide interviewing Matt Murdock. While Snide's snide remarks don't phase Matt, a special bulletin that interrupts the interview does. Bullseye has escaped from jail, and he is on the loose. So when the TV comes back to the interview set, Matt's just left Tom Snide behind without a word. And Daredevil rushes to the hospital where Bullseye escaped from, and he stands amongst these chalk outlines of the victims, plural, with Police Lieutenant Manilis. Manilis is your standard cop fill-in, a.k.a. exposition. Manilis says that Bullseye escaped to track down Daredevil, but a doctor named Gloss tells them that there is more to it than that. Her name's really Gloss? Really? A female doctor named Gloss? First thing I think of is lip gloss, but I'm detracting here. The scene flips to a bald bullseye, wearing a long coat, walking the streets of New York. Amid the lights of the Big Apple, Bullseye realizes his worst fear. The devils have taken over. Everywhere he looks, men, women, children, they're going about their lives just like normal, but they're all wearing the costume of his enemy, Daredevil. So, Bullseye does what he does. He tears into them, stabbing, bludgeoning, choking five people in about as many seconds. Once the crowd disperses, Bullseye goes to a nearby tailor, just like any of us would do after choking, bludgeoning, all that. But he turns the open sign around to closed. 20 minutes later, a fully costumed Bullseye kicks the door open on one unsuspecting customer and experiences a searing pain in his brain. When he recovers a bit, Bullseye declares his hatred for Daredevil. Meanwhile, Daredevil and Manilus learn from Dr. Gloss that Bullseye has a cancerous tumor on his brain, which is, or in his brain more appropriately, which is causing the headaches and the hallucinations. So if Bullseye is not found, he's going to die soon. Now, Manilus doesn't see much of a loss, but Daredevil declares that they must save him. And, of course, conveniently, a uniformed police officer enters to say that Bullseye has been spotted in Times Square, screaming something about devils. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. Uh, the first page introduces kind of a Frank Miller staple, the TV screens with talking heads. They serve as... A bit of a Greek choir for the story, if you will. Now, Miller's going to go on and use this a lot, most notably in The Dark Knight. It basically serves in that to give us the perspective of the world at large. Here, just serves to tell us that Bullseye is on the loose. And the host's name, Tom Snide, is a reference to talk show host Tom Snyder, who was the host of the show Tomorrow. He also went on to do the original incarnation of The Late Late Show, now hosted by Craig Ferguson. Basically, Tomorrow was a one-on-one -on -one interview show. But again, it's just a springboard to get Daredevil where he needs to be, but it's a good, nice, exciting springboard. Now, at the hospital where the chalk outlines of Bullseye's victims are drawn on the floor, we don't see the violence, we don't see the carnage, but we know it had to be pretty bad 
just looking at the haphazard way that the bodies are drawn on the floor. And I like this. It's scary without hitting us in the face with it. It's kind of a subconscious horror movie. Because we're looking at the image, it's like, oh, this hospital is nice. This is, oh, crap, that's where the dead people were. And then we get this amazing spread of Bullseye in the middle of the street, cowering. He's surrounded by daredevils everywhere, and they're all different shapes, sizes. It's phenomenal. And Miller's more distinctive style is on display, including a more etched line, more squared features on the characters. The shot is, it's really chaotic. There's a lot of lights... Uh, basically removes most of the defining pieces of the building structures in the background. So it gives us a claustrophobic feel. And the result, I mean, what we're looking at here is a shot where the reader feels Bullseye's anxiety just a little bit. Because we have the close quarters, the snow shows how the night is cold, and the sky really can't be seen. We can't discern that. It's like a stage of sorts. It's very disorienting. And then, well, I mean, let's be honest, shit gets real. Bullseye snaps, and he just starts attacking everyone around him. And it's a sequence of four panels of pure, murderous rage. The best part is that the first panel shows a fully rendered backdrop of storefronts. And then that disappears. Because what happens is we're in Bullseye's head, where the only focus is killing the devils. I mean, he literally picks a guy up, throws him against a light pole hard enough to kill the guy. And all of this while his female, the dead person's female companion, watches and screams. And the final victim is a street hustler who has his neck snapped with his scarf. I mean, it's complete with a snack. S-N-A-K, sound effect. Not snack as in I'm going to eat some Oreos. And then we kind of have the backdrop returned. So we leave his headspace, and then we see the people in their real form, and they're fleeing. So for one page plus one panel, we're in this dizzied, frenzied, crazed world of Bullseye's perceptions. And I swear, I didn't breathe until that scene was over. And I should note that after that intense moment, we really don't know what happened to the tailor. Or how the tailor whipped together that costume in 20 minutes. Which is in itself kind of scary because we see the bullseye walk in, the sign turns as the tailor's talking. Next thing we know, he's coming out of the store. And there's no noise from the tailor, I'm just saying. It's what we don't see. It's the Jaws effect. And of course, we do get an explanation for bullseye breaking down at Coney Island, as I hinted at when we covered that episode. There's this brain tumor that's affecting his perception, which is why he lost his Now, the debate here really plays into that idea that I've been talking about, about Matt kind of seeing the world with these maybe over-idealized notions. Because Mandalus is pretty content to let Bullseye die. Hey, natural causes, natural selection, it rids the world of a psychopathic villain. But Daredevil is all about saving Bullseye because it's the moral thing to do. Now, I'm going to be honest here, I kind of side with Mandalus a bit. I mean, how many people are going to die while they wait for Bullseye to drop dead? Now, that's not to say that life isn't sacred, but let's be honest, we know Bullseye. Bullseye is going to kill people. Bullseye is killing people. And I'm not going to delve into this idea too much at the moment, because there's a lot more coming into this story that are going to kind of need to be put on the table to really bite into this idea of an over-idealized Daredevil, or perception of Daredevil. So let's dive back into the story and kind of see the first of Daredevil's hard choices. At a Times Square movie theater, Bullseye hides out in the showing of the Maltese Falcon and rants to himself about how the devils have taken over. Another patron gets upset at Bullseye's talking and tries to call him out on it, but gets kicked in the face for his trouble. As a pair of cinema junkies break down the merits of the Maltese Falcon, a fight erupts in the dark theater. Outside, Daredevil runs into one of the patrons who is leaving the theater because, well, screw that, and finds out where Bullseye is from him. 
We flash over to Heather making excuses for Matt missing Foggy's Christmas party as Daredevil arrives in the theater making a grand entrance by casting his shadow on the screen. Kind of like a Daredevil shadow puppet. Daredevil and Bullseye fight just a little bit, but Bullseye puts a knife to the throat of one of the cinema fans and gives Daredevil an ultimatum. Drop the billy club and let Bullseye kill Daredevil or Bullseye will kill the innocent bystander. Daredevil's life or an innocent man's life. Daredevil sees that he has no choice. So he drops his club and Bullseye throws the knife, hitting the man without fear who falls into the aisle. Elsewhere, Elektra swings into Matt's apartment and finds the small sculpture that Heather got from Matt as a Christmas gift. Enraged that Matt has a new love, Elektra throws the small sculpture into a mirror, which wakes up Heather. As Heather enters the room, Elektra swings out the window and back into the cold, snowy night. Frank Miller's love of hard-boiled detective movies is not a secret at all. Sin City direct result of that fandom. So, Dashiell Hammett's Sam Spade is pretty much the poster boy of noir detective stories, and the nod is appreciated with the Maltese Falcon. And it also has a really nice subtext that they happen to be seeing this movie, because, well, in that movie, Sam Spade has to make a reluctant choice at the end, which results in a less-than-happy ending. But let's be honest here. The key moment of this section is undoubtedly Daredevil, with his shoulders slumped, dropping his billy club. Now, it seems like a fairly upfront choice. But it really isn't, because the terms are a life for a life. Daredevil's actually letting Bullseye go on to take more lives. So the terms are actually not what they seem. Had Daredevil risked throwing the club and stopping Bullseye, it could have meant that Bullseye didn't go free to kill more people. And if Bullseye walked out of the theater and had one of his episodes, five, ten, more, they could have been slaughtered. And that's a crappy choice. And Daredevil has no time to think through all of these consequences. Daredevil just has the immediate situation. And the slight hope that Bullseye is going to keep his word. And that is a very, very slight hope. I mean, really, if Bullseye kills Daredevil, what's to say that he won't just kill the hostage, the hostage's friend, the concession counter girl, Connie Chung? There's nothing to stop him. And I'm kind of wondering if Daredevil probably should have taken a shot with the billy club. But, I mean, I guess we would lose the dramatic scene. Speaking of dramatic scenes, Elektra checks out Matt's apartment because nothing says stable and sane like becoming an international bounty hunter who occasionally, occasionally stalks her ex-boyfriend who has become a masked vigilante. I mean, what exactly did Elektra expect to find? I mean, was she hoping that Matt was still pining over her after all these years? That he hadn't moved on? Maybe she thought Matt's activity as Daredevil was the result of a deep brooding nothingness like her choice. Who knows? But Elektra hightails it when Heather comes into the room, which is a missed opportunity in my opinion. And her appearance kind of cements for me the idea that Miller, he may not have had the plan in place for what's to come for this character, but he definitely wanted to do something with Elektra. And don't you think Elektra is going to be ticked when she finds out that Matt has apparently died? Now oh, come on, let's be honest. We know Matt ain't dead, so what happens next? Let's take a look. Bullseye has returned with the film fans to their humble apartment and is keeping his new friends hostage. Meanwhile, Daredevil reveals that he is alive, having blocked the knife with his hand. I don't think it works that way, but let me get to that. Using information from a prescription bottle, Daredevil deduces that they are throat lozenges. And one of the hostages will have a distinctive cough. So the man without fear gets as high as he can. I mean... He gets up on top of a building, and he sorts through all of the myriad of sounds that come from the neighborhood until he's able to key in on the cough. In the apartment, Bullseye has another of his episodes, 
and one of the film fans is about to club him with a replica of the Maltese Falcon while he's weak, but Bullseye snaps out of it. So, seeing that now, Bullseye's pissed. But Daredevil bursts through the window just in time, and a fight ensues, and the fight tumbles out of the apartment and the building into the subway where Daredevil's radar sense is knocked out by a passing train. So truly blind, Daredevil manages to fend off Bullseye and brutally knock the villain out by slamming his head onto the rails. So with Bullseye unconscious and another train approaching, Daredevil gets to safety and actually considers leaving the knocked out baddie laying on the tracks. Because, let's be honest, surely Bullseye deserves it. Daredevil's worn out, he's still working blind. But Daredevil relents and saves Bullseye, delivering him to the hospital to have his surgery. Manilus tells Daredevil that he saved Bullseye and now more people will probably die as a result. And that will be on Daredevil's shoulders. Daredevil basically justifies his actions by saying that he's not God. He's not the law. And as he walks away, the doctors performing the surgery on Bullseye declare the operation a success. The issue ends, Bullseye will live, but will Daredevil regret his choice? So... There's a bit of sleight of hand in how Daredevil escapes being killed by Bullseye. He blocked the blade with his hand. It can be assumed that Bullseye threw the knife with enough force to penetrate the sternum or ribcage and hit Daredevil's heart. We do, upon reflection, see Daredevil grabbing the knife at the sides as it slides by, and this cuts Daredevil's hand. Now sure, sure, slows down the puncture, but still just a little bit hard to get a grasp, no pun intended, on stopping an object moving with that force as the blade slices through the hand. I just don't know that it would slow down enough to not seriously injure Daredevil. Because you're looking at it, the costume doesn't have a rip in it. It didn't penetrate the costume or even the upper parts of the skin. Now I think this is a new comic book physics project. And that's right up W. Blaine Dollar's alley. Because, okay, the idea is just making my head hurt. I'm just putting my doubt out there. But sometimes we have to buy into a near miss to kind of allow the story to move in the right direction. And that direction is leading to a personal, brutal, one-on-one -on -one conflict with Bullseye. But not without some detective work. There's a bit of an odd path to this. Because we're still at the theater, Daredevil notes the lozenges and the prescription bottle that was dropped when Bullseye and his friends, quote-unquote friends, hostages, left. And then we move to a scene with Bullseye and the film fans and a nice speech about how the good guys only win in the movie. And then we're back on the scene where Daredevil borrows the bottle, slipping it out of Manilus's pocket without him noticing, which is actually kind of a funny scene because Daredevil has his finger to his lip saying, shh, and he examines the, the, the bottle. That's how he determines that the user would have a distinctive heavy cough. That's a nice beat. I like this scene a lot. But why are we splitting the scene? Were we dealing with a filler page... Did Miller decide he needed a bit more exposition space? I'm not sure, but it's hardly the most stilted story beat ever. Not by a long shot. But it's just a little weird that we needed two laps for Daredevil to get there. Now, on the flip side of that, more to the point, Daredevil is using some Sam Spade-like methods. I mean, I like logic. And when your lead character is a respected, successful trial lawyer, it pays to show some intelligence under that cowl. This, in turn, leads to one of my favorite sequences in the issue. Daredevil gets on top of one of the highest nearby buildings, and he just lets all of the sounds in. So we have televisions, alarm clocks, sinks dripping, uh, blinds blowing in the windows, which is odd. It's clearly snowing, it's clearly cold. Who leaves their windows open in a snowstorm? But he cycles through all these sounds in a stylized panel, and this shows a dar uh, very dark, sketchy, nearly silhouetted Daredevil lit from below. He's sitting cross-legged in this meditative stance as all of this stimulation floods his senses. 
and he's filtering it. Now, for me, in the filtering process, I kind of picture it like an internal mechanism, kind of like Tom Cruise a Minority Report. All this information floods in, he's mentally shifting it, filing it, putting it where it needs to be. And one by one, he shuts down the superfluous sounds and finally gets to that proverbial needle in a haystack, the distinctive cough of a hostage with a throat condition. The page is comprised of three large, long panels that go the width of the page. Within that, on the left-hand side of those panels, is a picture of a serene daredevil. Very focused, very quiet. Within that long panel are three small panels across the page, and each one depicts a different noise. So we move from the top panel with the louder traffic sounds at the top, progressing down the page to the quieter sounds. So we're going layer by layer, with nearly literal layers, at least visually, as we move deeper into the page. I mean, it's really, really well composed, and I hope it didn't go unappreciated at the time, because things like the snowy skyline behind Daredevil just enhance this scene. And of course, I'm a mark for images of Daredevil in the snow and how that affects his senses. But it all leads to Daredevil coming crashing through the apartment window and what we've been waiting on. Daredevil versus Bullseye, one-on-one, up-close, personal... There are no hostages, no theme park distractions, no television cameras for Bullseye to grandstand for. We're not dealing with graceful blows. Not a lot of flips or poses. This is punching, kicking, pretty damn near scratching. We've got no quips, no dialogue at all, really just straight up street fighting. Bullseye tries to run and Daredevil straight tackles him. Not an elegant throwing and banking of the billy club, a hard line tackle. Are you getting that this is a lot more visceral than what we've seen before? And then, thanks to a train, Daredevil is suddenly without the senses he relies on. So Miller, and I don't know if this is intentional or not, has given us this true sense of relevance to the senses. Both ends of the spectrum. Because we have a prior scene of Daredevil searching for Bullseye's hostages, Matt sitting serene on a rooftop, all of this floods in, and then it's a visceral fight below the city's surface, and Daredevil's deprived of those senses, from high to low. Serene to violent, fully aware to fully blind. Both ends of the spectrum. It manages to kick up the fight's intensity a lot, and shows us just how much Daredevil relies on these senses of his. I mean, it's just a nice beat as the entire sequence takes us further and further downward, and I suppose there's some symbolism of Bullseye dragging Daredevil down to his level or down to hell. I don't necessarily buy into that. But definitely there's an intent behind the sequence of events and the downward feel of the fight. And just a odd, random note. The graffiti on the side of the train in the subway station includes nods to poet Jim Carroll, as well as the name Lennon, and the term Yoko Go Home. This is kind of an accidentally tragic nod. It was probably based on a real train in New York, since Miller pulled from real locations. But this issue hit stands on December 2nd, 1980. John Lennon was senselessly gunned down by Mark David Chapman on the streets of New York on December 8th, 1980, just six days later. It's an oddity, it's not a prophetic nod, it's just a really crappy coincidence. But, let's get down to the guts of this issue. Choices. That's the big piece of it. The choices that Daredevil makes and why he makes them. First, there's the choice to let Bullseye throw the knife at him rather than the innocent bystander. Okay, despite all of the ins and outs, there's only the why. Well, there's a person in immediate trouble with an immediate solution. Daredevil stopping the knife was in the plan, but when Mandalus and his cops arrived, they stopped Bullseye from checking out his handiwork, which kind of bothers me a bit. Now, theoretically, it probably would have led to another fight similar to the climax of this issue, but it kind of works for, for a suspenseful moment, which is the very reason the scene exists. The big choice, you know, the one that's really relevant, that isn't just there to kind of flesh out the story and give us drama, is to save Bullseye. Now, we're not just talking about saving him on the train tracks at the end. 
But from the very beginning, from the very outset, when Daredevil declares that Bullseye must receive his surgery, he must live. Miller's once again showing that idealized attitude towards things that Matt has. Let's kind of be honest about it. The world would be a better place without Bullseye in it. More people would live, and it's not like Bullseye is in any way, shape, or form remorseful. But Matt feels like Bullseye should have a chance to live, and a chance to reform, and maybe, and for the love of Pete, this is a huge maybe, but maybe removing that tumor will reset Bullseye's brain, and Bullseye will be capable of human empathy. But it doesn't seem that Matt's really weighing all of the options. Just the moral one, just the right one as in morally upright, because the flip side doesn't come into the equation in Daredevil's mind, and the speech at the end makes me think that Matt's really working within his rules. So now I kind of have to wonder, is Matt idealistic? Or is he whitewashing this? Or are we dealing with his rules? These are the rules, this is the law, that we saw introduced in Man Without Fear. I mean, the law is great, and Matt believes in it, but not only that, Matt has no authority to enforce the law, only to process it, because he's not deputized. And Matt's whole idea that I'm not the law, well, you know, just being Daredevil bends the law. It's your sneaky lawyer's trick, Matt. So, why does Daredevil, who, who's hurting, he's actually blind, why is he sticking his neck out for a killer? It's not idealized, not in this one. I thought it would be, it's not even in the rules, per se. The reason he saves Bullseye in the end is, it's not personal. Matt doesn't have that kind of stake in this, even at this point. These two haven't been doing the hero and villain dance for all that long. The closest thing to personal was Bullseye trying to kill him, kidnapping the Black Widow. Bear in mind, Black Widow's competent enough on her own. People try to kill her all the time. Now, if somebody were trying to kill you or I, we'd take that pretty personally. But let's be honest, for Matt, it's Tuesday. He's a target. He's a superhero. Bullseye is a villain. That's his role. Daredevil's doing his role in stopping that villainy. To me, this kind of works like the old Looney Tunes bit, where Wiley e. Coyote and the Sheepdog clock in, they do their thing back and forth, and then they clock out, they have a casual conversation while enjoying lunch. It's just their job. Now, had it come down to it, if the choice was to save an innocent person on the tracks versus let Bullseye die, well, that would really put a wrench in the gears of the villain. Bullseye wouldn't be around anymore. But that's not the choice it came down to. Matt did the right thing. For all the grittiness that this run is known for, Miller peppers in some positivity in Matt's character. We can never really forget that Matt is a good guy. He's not just a skilled person. He's not just out on a mission. He is a good guy. Does he idealize things? Yes, that's why he's Daredevil. He's out to do good things. He's out to help people. That's idealistic in itself. Does he, however, omit things to maintain that idealistic vision? The more I think about it, and I've had a week to do so, and the more I've looked at this story, no. Again, we kind of have to come back to Matt's rules. This very stringent view of the world when he's out of that cowl. They are very clear, they are very concise, they are based on the law. And the law says, innocent until proven guilty. The law says, people have a right to a trial. And that's what Matt is working with here. It's a little bit different than what we saw with Electra. Related, but different. But, I'm also going to say this. We're also setting something up that will kick Matt in the crotch. I mean, consider this a volley for an eventual spike. And while that setup is there, this issue, as a standalone, is a solid, solid issue showing how stoic and idealistic Daredevil can be and how inherently heroic Matt is. There are also several really solid seeds planted in this and the last issue. Miller may not be wiping the slate clean, but 
with this and the last issue, we're setting up as a prologue to what's going to be coming. Basically setting up raw material and using it to craft a solid tone and direction for the book. And it feels invigorated for the first time in a while. Bullseye feels a lot deadlier. There are no paper airplanes, no giant crossbows. No, we're just dealing with fists, real knives. It's more down to earth. It's up close, and it may not be personal for Bullseye and Daredevil, but I'm going to be honest with you. It's not going to be long till the man without fear sees that change and sees his sanity tested. Now, if you want to read this story, and I do recommend that you do so, it is reprinted in Daredevil Gang War Trade Paperback, Daredevil Visionaries Frank Miller Volume 2 Trade Paperback, Daredevil vs. Bullseye Trade Paperback, Daredevil by Frank Miller and Klaus Janssen Omnibus, and of course Marvel Digital and Digital Unlimited. But for the moment, I'm going to put the comic aside and take a look at your emails, or more accurately, your email. Dave, the test came back positive. You have emails. This week we have one single email, but it is epic in length. It's from Zeb Oswalt, subject line DD Podcast Feedback. Zeb writes, Hi Dave, I'm Zeb Oswalt, longtime listener, first time writer of Feedback. Cool show as always, I like your podcast. I like Matt Murdock as a character. My run was mostly the JRJR run and later when Carl Kiesel took over, so basically my favorite run on DD was the Kiesel run. Too bad it was over in 12 parsecs. I liked the issues of DD when Miller took over, I just mostly read them as back issues. I also bought the Secret Wars toy. I think I either got it at Christmas with Doctor Doom or bought him at the mall at KB Toys. I remember reading a few cool issues of DD where Matt forgot he was DD and was a thief and had some cute gal as his girlfriend. At that time, Bullseye dressed as DD to discredit him, but made him into an anti-hero by mistake. They were kind of fun. It was around the same time Captain America was going through the Bloodstone thing. Grunwald was writing those. Rick Lim was the penciler. I can't remember who wrote and drew Cap, but I'd go to the mall and get them from Walden Books. Oh, you were... I'm going to take a moment here. You're speaking to my memory. KB Toys and Walden Books? You're hitting me right in the heart. But back to Zeb's email. I saw the DDTV movie with him and Hulk, as well as his brief appearance in Spider-Man and his amazing friends, as well as his briefer appearance in the 90s Spider-Man cartoon. I dressed as DD for one Halloween where I gave out candy. I was 14 and too old to trick or treat. I thought it was the red and yellow costume. I didn't have anything yellow, so it became white and black. I drew the DD on the shirt with a Sharpie, had two billy clubs I'd whittled together from an oak tree outside. Not the goofiest costume I wore the year before, I had dressed as Cap, the John Walker Cap. It was the 80s. Anyway, I remember there being sort of an earlier DD toy. It looked like a big plastic army man. I may have inherited it from my birth father. At any rate, it was a big red piece of plastic sculpted to look like DD. And like a plastic army man, it had no articulation but its weapon, a billy club. He was in a stock action pose and sadly, before I got it, a dog had gnawed on the billy club so it looked a bit fugly. Still, it was a DD toy, all red, even his face, that should have been peach, but whatever. It looked like the Vision in a DD costume. Still cool, though. I also remember the Marvel TSR RPG. In it, we once played a what-if game. I played Matt Murdock, but not DD in it. DD tries to save a boy, not an old man, from getting hit by the chemical truck, but the boy had been a mutant, Thomas Waldowski. Sadly, the boy died, but Matt got his powers, which were like static shocks he could control momentum. But he didn't have his radar sense, so he had to be trained from his teen years to adulthood to use his other senses to feel the world around him. In real life, I've been blind in my left eye since birth, so I felt it could be done. Granted, the momentum control took a bit more work. I had him affect machines and things in momentum more than people. I called him Apparatus, which was a stupid name, but ah well. 
I read a bit of Colin's run I got from those from my birth father with some Deathlock and other comics. Or they may have been a gift. Not sure, I was kind of the kid of the 70s. Some comics I thought were hand-down, hand-me-downs, turned out to be just stuff they bought for me. Since to me at the time, DD stuff from the 80s looked a lot shinier, better to a child, but as you get older, you see how great these colon comics really are. I just didn't get it at five. I was born in 1974. I had those comics for years, though they were the dog-eared ones. Black Widow seemed cool, but after she left the book till the movie, I can't think of anywhere she's really been given a chance to shine. Though she was one of the best choices Matt has had with his girlfriends. Yep, Karen is bad, but wait till Mary comes around. Ah yes, Typhoid Mary. Matt's blind, so you'd think he wouldn't just be following his billy club when it came to women. But sorry, Typhoid Mary, the mentioned Karen, that Heather chick, the one who he married and went to a mental ward. Sorry, but I gotta worry about Matt's taste in women. Now let's see, Mr. Peter, woe is me, Parker, had MJ, Gwen, other okay relationships... His one point where he followed his amazing Spider-Man without blinking was Black Cat. But Matt. Oh, poor Matt. Steve Rogers has Peggy Sharon Diamondback. She was an ex-crook, but till Steve dropped the ball, she had reformed and never beeped over Steve. Matt, on the other hand, once tried to date Moondragon when he was in The Defenders. There was Valkyrie and the second Red Star, and he went for Moondragon? Oh, Matt, Matt, Matt. The voice in my head as I write Matt is from Al from Happy Days. <laughs> Because I just feel sorry for Matt and his desire to pick the most wrong women for him of all time, I haven't even got to the top yet of his oops. You probably know who she is. Mary looks like a sane choice next to her, but before that, let's look at Ben Grimm. He dates Alicia, Miss Marvel. I think he dated Thundra. Okay, one oops. But Matt, thinking man, great lawyer, crime fighter, Matt, who got through college, law school, and the bar at 26, somehow he goes for, as the women, Electra. I mean, you can hear the Price is Right fail music on that one. I like Matt. He's even a fun character to draw for fan art, which I haven't in years, but I remember Kazada doing a cool drawing of him. I like the Ben Affleck movie. Haven't seen the director's cut, but it was pretty good. Joey Pants was great as Ben. Ben Affleck was great as DD. I found What's-His-Name okay as Bullseye. I wasn't a fan of Garner as Elektra, but she was okay till the Elektra movie. The costume to me worked. I couldn't see Spandex being as effective. I didn't read the BMB run on him. I read him a few MCP books in one issue. Fisk's doctor has a heart attack, so a doctor puts a bomb in the doc's chest. In his artificial heart. Matt has to save Fisk because he's Daredevil. The man's daughter watches as Matt realizes there's no time left, and he has to toss the man out a window, and he explodes. Fisk comforts the daughter, realizing that Matt saved him, so there's this evil smile on the kingpin. There was another one where he saved some crazy woman and her daughter because their slumlord is about to kick them out of their apartment. And he uses thugs to beat them and make them leave. May have been a rent control slum, so he couldn't get them out and blow up the apartments to sell for more money. I had been on a tear of Marvel Comics Presents at the time and there were a few DD stories in them. The issue you read was pretty cool with DD being confronted by Ben Urich. I haven't read the issue, but it has a big place in DD's history. I liked how Miller drew him. He kind of looked like someone who stepped out of the Night Stalker or the Lou Grant show. A news guy, not pristine like Clark, but not an e-guy either. He looked like cigarettes and a pot of coffee were all that held him together, like he stepped out of a pulp mag. He had the rolled up shirt, dress pants, leather shoes, tie that was barely tied, and a belt and a pair of glasses. He had to be in his 40s. No way Ben was any younger, he just looked like it. Like he'd been at the news game all of his life, he saw stuff that took him from an ideologist to the gruff newshound we saw in the comic. And yeah, you're right, he fits DD perfectly for what Frank Miller was doing. 
I know Yurik for his being in Spidey's comic and his nephew being the only good green goblin. I'm pretending the bit where he became the hobgoblin never happened. Nope, Ben's nephew, in my personal continuity, went off to keep dating some girl and will be the gold goblin in Spider-Girl. La la la. Oh, speaking of Spider-Girl, there is a DD in there. I think he's the son of Nightcrawler or something. He was pretty cool. Strangely, the only DD stuff from that time I've read is the Elektra stuff, one where he fights the guy whose touch kills. One where he defends a mob boss because Matt doesn't believe he killed the guy, and turns out the guy had a pacemaker and tricked Matt. My favorite bit of that was Punisher in the book. As a teen, Punisher was one of my favorites. I was a kid. It is what it is. At 40, I have no idea why anymore. It's too bad Joe Kubert has passed because I would have loved to have seen a DD comic written and drawn by Joe Kubert. The issues you've covered so far make me want to go find a few TV trade paperbacks of that time period. And I did get the Marvel Masterworks of DD with Wally Wood and Joe Orlando. They were kind of fun. I remember a few good what-if stories of DD too. One where Daredevil kills the Kingpin, and at the end, the Rose, aka the Kingpin's son, becomes the new DD since DD dies saving his life. Killing even Wilson Fisk drove Matt mad. I look forward to hearing more of your podcasts. They're pretty cool. From Zeb Oswald. Ah, Zeb. First off, the Kiesel run is made of awesome. He and Carrie Nord created a tone and a look that was just glorious. For the first time in a long time, that book became fun again, and I plan on covering that. It's set in stone, but it's going to be a long while before I do. Secondly, when you mentioned the Army Man-style Daredevil, I said to myself, well, I, I must have that. So I looked it up on eBay, and it seems that all of the billy clubs are chewed up by dogs, or that's just what it looks like. I'm not saying it's your dog, but there is a pattern here. No, I'm kidding. The billy club looks a bit mangled in every one I saw, so maybe it just has a design flaw. However, I am holding out for a slightly better price. Let's always remember, I'm cheap. And you echo my sentiments on Matt's love life. Pun intended, it's just a train wreck. When your only really viable relationship is with Karen Page, something is wrong. I mean, let's be honest, we're talking about a guy that totally blew it with the Black Widow. Big time. You mentioned Typhoid Mary, who I'm going to be getting to next year. It's on the books, and I actually have a song on my playlist dedicated to her. It's Marilyn Manson's cover of Tainted Love. I think it's pretty fitting. As for the Daredevil movie, I definitely recommend taking a look at the director's cut. It's not that the theatrical cut is horrible. I'm a fan of it, but the director's cut fleshes out the plot and gives Foggy something to do, some really nice moments, and you actually get to see a little bit more of Karen. But the idea of Joe Kubert on Daredevil gave me a full-on goosebump attack. It rattled around in my head, and I thought, didn't Kubert do some Daredevil? And I looked it up, I found no Joe Kubert Daredevil work, which is a shame. Because that would have been awesome. What a great fit. Now, the closest we came was Adam Kubert, his son, who did a variant cover to Daredevil Volume 325. Now, that cover is quite awesome, but he's no Joe Kubert. No offense to Adam, but Joe is Joe. And you mentioned What If. That was a series that was massively hit or miss. I really enjoyed some of those. I even have a few on the potential coverage list. But sometimes, man, it just went off the rails and it never ended happy. But I appreciate your testimony, appreciate your writing in, I appreciate you listening. I'm glad to hear you're digging the show. Hopefully I'm doing the character justice. But that is the end of episode 26. Next week, after all this excitement, surely we're going to take a moment to breathe, right? Not nah, crap. It's the kingpin. Once he thought he was out, now they're going to pull him back in. He makes his entry into the Daredevil fold with Daredevil 170. That is in seven days. Until then, remember that justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one. They call a man without fear. 
have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. The show can be subscribed to via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers, or streaming on the Stitcher app, giving you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted through the contact form on the website or directly with the address dave at daredevilpodcast.com. The show is all over social media. On Facebook, you can find it by searching Dave's Daredevil Podcast, on Twitter with the username at Dave Weeder, and on Tumblr at daredevilpodcast.tumblr.com. Daredevil and related characters are copyright Marvel Comics, and any sound clips or music are for entertainment purposes only. This podcast does not make any money on these elements and is simply made for entertainment. All copyrights lie with the copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. I am Dave, and thank you for listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Here